0: We're in the series on, from Second Peter, uh, Peter's final remarks, <clears throat> and as I was thinking about some of the last things I would like to say to you as a congregation, it seemed to kind of correlate to what uh, Peter was saying as he gives his final remarks as we look at uh, pursuing character, focusing on Jesus, be on guard, and embrace the future, and we will be looking at those messages to complete that series. So I think... It's very, very important what Peter writes for us as a people of faith. It was read, the section we're going to look at today was that experience on the holy mountain that was read, Nancy just read in a moment, a few moments ago. Um, <clears throat> there's a book I appreciated when I was growing up years ago read by Episcopal priest called Small Decencies. It's really a very, very significant book of experiences that he had in life. And he recalls one experience in the beginning, his first writings there about he would go every year up to Cass Lake up in northern Minnesota and he would go to this the brow of this hill and he would sit on the brow of that hill. It was dirt on that hill and he would sit there. And it became a very, very special time for each year as he realized who he was, what he came from and who he's become. And he says how significant that like mountaintop experience was for him. When I was 13 years old, my folks sent us, all the rest of us kids, up to a camp in northern Wisconsin over there in God's country, and and over there, um, I really didn't particularly like going to the camp, to be honest with you. It was very ultra-conservative. I thought it rather ironic boys couldn't go to swimming with girls, but while the girls were swimming, all the boys were lining up on the fence watching the girls swim. (laughs) I thought, what's the big deal here, you know? But nonetheless, it was the place. It was a very, very special place for me because it's the place that I came to Christ. At the end of the week, as you know, it kind of culminates, Camp Does, and at the end when the pastor at the time called for people who wanted to give their life to Christ, I went forward. And so that camp and that place that I stop in from time to time is very important to me. Also, my first year at Oak Hills Christian College, when I was there, it was a fire tower that was there that people often went to, and it was a special place way up on the, the highest point of the campus. And it was there where I realized that I need to rededicate and confirm my commitment to Christ. And that was a very, very special place, and it has been for me over the years. And As we look at the experience of Peter, as he describes in the passage that was read... This was a mountaintop experience for him. To him, the experience of up there on the mountain with the Moses and Elijah and Jesus, a couple other disciples, to him, it was one who validated to him the reality of who Christ really is. Because he says in the text, we do not follow cleverly biased tales or stories when we told you about the Lord Jesus Christ coming in power. We are eyewitnesses of his glory on the holy mountain. That was very, very important to Peter. And he passes that on to us. He says it wasn't clear, cleverly devised myths or tales. There's a lot of tales and myths that are available to us these days. I love reading The Lord of the Rings. I can remember when I was my, working when I was 19 years old as a night watchman, and after I got my work done, I would sit down and read, in the, kind of in the dark. It was a very dark place, The Lord of the Rings, and it profoundly affected me. But there is no Middle Earth even though I love the story of Middle-earth. I love the Chronicles of Narnia, always have. But there is no such place as called Narnia, it is a myth. Oh, I love Star Wars too, all these intergalactic planets that they talk about. But there are, those planets are not real. And all the other, isn't it interesting, all the other action movies that we're seeing today are are reviving old ancient Greco-Roman myths and stories. But they're not real. At the time of Jesus in the Greco-Roman world, they were polytheistic, there were many many gods and goddesses, and they would elaborate stories to explain the natural phenomenon and how the deities behaved and their strengths and their weaknesses and their histories. The polytheistic worldview, again, really makes for great Hollywood movies, but there's no historical reality to the polytheistic worldview. Is Christianity just another one of the mythologies that was created by the followers of the cult of Jesus Christ. Or as the experiences that Jesus are are historically true and therefore life-changing, particularly as it relates to the death and the resurrection of Christ. It seems the apostolic writers and the apostles hinged their very faith, their very life, and their very existence, that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was no myth, that it really happened in time and in space. And Peter draws upon another event to him, that validates to him that Jesus is truly who he says he is. And that is in 2 Peter, that was read, that Nancy read this morning, that experience, again, up on that holy mountain. The experience that Peter had with Jesus and others up on that mountain validated the true identity of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And to understand these extraordinary experiences, we need to dip back into the Old Testament and the Gospels to understand this mountaintop of event and its significance. I remind you of the absolute necessity to understand the Old Testament to make sense of Jesus' ministry and work. I'm reading a book in our, our book club called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, and she states: The Old Testament, the New Testament is a profoundly Jewish text, and trying to unhitch Jesus from the Old Testament is like trying to unhitch Shakespeare from the Eng- English language. It just cannot be done. There's three mountaintop experiences that play into this. Experience that Peter describes up on the mountain with Jesus. And we have to go back to mountaintop experiences in the Old Testament to see also the the majestic glory is being realized and experienced on these mountains. And they're told to pay, pay close attention, pay attention to the experience on this holy mountain. And you recall Moses was the great prophet and the great lawgiver who in Exodus 20, chapter 24, it says after six days, and it's important, after six days, he went up on the mountain. He was up there for 40 days and experiencing the reality of the majestic glory of of God. After 40 days, he descends from the mountain and he's, he's glowing. He's literally glowing, reflecting the Shekinah glory of God. He isn't embodying it. He's reflecting it as he comes off the mountain. When he comes off that mountaintop experience, he's, he's, he's shattered by what was taking place. For down in the valley, the, the leaders, Aaron and others, could not manage what was going on, and, and they were pressured because this Moses up on the mountain, he's been gone, he's not coming down. And of course, you know, they built a golden calf and participated in religious syncretism to mix the worship of God with the golden calf. And he comes down from that majestic glory with God with, with such anger, that he throws down the tablets. And he, what he does to the people is very, very significant. He responds in his anger. It's interesting, when, he, when God wants to respond in his anger shortly after, he says, God, which I want to appeal to your patience. And after that, Moses kills a bunch of people. It's very interesting what took place. But when he came down to the mountain, there was confusion. The leadership was not able to handle what was going on. And God says, this is an evil, perverse generation. How long must I put up with them? And it's very, very important in Exodus chapter 32, you really do well to read that passage because it is the most remarkable interaction that God has with a person and a servant of his who genuinely loves him and seeks his well-being. But that mountaintop experience of Moses becomes very, very important as we look at Jesus' experience because it was Moses who was up on top of that mountain with Jesus. We have another mountaintop experience with Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel where you realize he had a remarkable experience where there was a deity conflict among the people between the true God El and his nephew Baal and they, they were, the Canaanites in, the, in Israel were wrestling over who is ultimately the superior and the only great God. And you recall the, the, the experience up there where the, the prophets of Baal could not bring down the fire. All they tried, they could not leverage their God. But fire came down when Elijah, fire from God, and destroyed the altar, and the prophets of Baal were destroyed. What a mountaintop experience for Elijah. But you recall in history the next day when Jezebel, Ahab's wife, threatens him, he runs for his life, and he flees from her presence and, and goes for many, many days until he finds himself up on another great mountain, the mountain of Sinai. And there, God meets him in a powerful way. He meets Elijah, and he doesn't with a storm, and he doesn't do it through the fire, but he meets him in a very small voice and assures him, You're not alone. I'm with you. There are many, many others who haven't bowed their knee to bow, and I've got work for you to do. I want you to go, and I want you to do my work. Two mountaintop experiences in the life of Elijah are very, very important because he did not pay attention at some point. He forgot so quickly the power and the greatness of God. And so he was also up there on that holy mountain with Jesus on that special day. And recorded in Matthew chapter 17, we see this mountaintop experience where Jesus ascends the mountain with three of the disciples. In the passage before this, it says, some of you will not see death until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. And this experience is where the glory of God is revealed to this select group up on this special mountain, this holy mountain, as, as Peter calls it. And you recall if you read the text, it says after six days, and that's important, after six days, he ascends to the mountain. He goes up to the mountain just like Moses went up after six days. He goes up on the mountain and there's something powerful that happens. Jesus is transformed. He doesn't reflect the glory of God. He is the glory of God. And he embodies the Shekinah glory up on that holy mountain. And the three disciples and Peter observes this. They see it. They hear the words to ringing out, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Pay attention to him. This is no ancient myth. This is is life-changing reality that Peter experienced up on the holy mountain. When they descend down to the mountain, what we see is confusion. Disciples that were left, just like Moses experienced, came down off the mountain, and the disciples couldn't handle things when Jesus was gone. They couldn't perform the miracles to heal of healing. And there was confusion. In the midst of that, Jesus says, this is a perverse and evil generation. How long am I going to put up with them? You see the parallel that's there. Listen to my beloved son. Pay attention to him. Friends, the reality of Jesus Christ is true regardless of what the skeptics of Peter's day and the educational elites of today wish us to believe. It is not a mythical story. Peter says, we were there. We heard the words from the majestic glory, God. It's true. And for us, as it rings down through the centuries, as we experience life, do we believe it's true? Do we believe that the majestic glory, God, appeared on that holy mountain, and Jesus demonstrated his glory? Because he is also referred to as the glory of God. And the message that's up on that holy mountain for all of us is, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Pay attention to Him. You go back to Second Peter, since this is a true event, we need to heed the words of, of God the Father and listen to Jesus and Peter's words to pay attention. The Israelites did not pay attention. They forgot the power and glory of God and what He had done in their recent history, the transforming things He did for them. They forgot. And Elijah forgot the power of God that was manifested up on that holy mountain up there with the prophets of Baal, and he forgot. And the disciples failed to pay attention. They suffered the consequences. And, folks, the call for us is to pay attention. If we pay attention, there are some things that will happen in our lives. If we pay attention, first of all, we'll affirm that Christ's true identity this is my beloved Son whom I am well pleased. The whole idea of the beloved son is, is prophesied in the Old Testament, but most notably in Messianic Psalm, Psalm 2, where in that Psalm it said, this is my beloved son, worship him, worship him, just like up on the holy mountain. Folks, he is the Messiah. He is the savior of the world. He is the only one that gives us the unique message of hope. He is the lamp that shines in the dark, murky places, as Peter calls it, the murky places of this world. He is the one who shines in those dark places with the only message, the only reality that gives us ultimate hope. But he immediately dresses our attention to the hope that's found in the prophetic work the prophetic work, he talks about the prophets, it's not just the, the, the prophets as we think of foretelling, it's all the Old Testament, all the prophetic work of the Holy Scriptures. And he refers to that twice, to draw our attention. Once they observed the Holy Mountain, now he, we need to observe it in the Holy Scriptures. And in the anticipation of his glorious return. And we will be raised with him to share his glory. If we're not going to forget and pay attention, folks, we will affirm the true identity of Christ and it makes all the difference in the world. As a song we sung, it doesn't do any good to look anywhere else, or Holly in her prayer. If we pay attention also to him, we will listen to Jesus above all the clamor. The question for you today is who are you listening to? All the shouts and all the clamor that's out there, all the people that are providing political, sociological, religious solutions to what's going on in the world. And it's clamor, it's just clamor, shouting loudly to us to to get our our allegiance that we would hear to their vision of hope. And the question always is, who are we listening to? What voice shouts louder than any other voice in your life? What voice in the stillness and the quietness of our hearts speaks most directly to us? Is it not the voice of the one who was glorified on the holy mountain? I affirm that all truth is God's truth wherever it's found, anywhere in the world. But there's a special revelation that's only found, recorded to us in the Holy Scriptures, which is the reality of what Christ has done for us. It's only found in the sacred word. And that's the voice we listen to. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Pay attention, Peter says, to Him. Folks, we have to tune out the false voices in our lives. We listen to the audience in the voice of one, which is Jesus. And Peter says if we pay attention, we will also pay attention and commit ourselves to the Holy Scriptures. Our commitment is through the integrity of the Bible that keeps us from coming up with our own contrived interpretations of the Bible, as Peter says. Listen, pay attention. Pay attention to the sacred word. And again, in Peter's mind, it's the whole of Scripture. It's not pieces that we want to parse and certain places we want to look, but it's a holistic message of the whole sacred word. We cannot become arbitrators of truth and not affirm that what was written was written by the ancient writers that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. If we pay attention to him, the one on the holy mountain, we'll be serious and we'll take the scripture seriously to study it, to understand it, to live it. It's interesting, at the end of the book of 2 Peter, Peter encouraged us to listen to the wisdom of the Apostle Paul, which he says is hard to understand. So take some comfort when we read the Apostle Paul. If Peter found it hard to understand, we might find it hard to understand as well. Peter had a hard time grasping some of the writings of, of Peter, of Paul. But if we're serious to pay attention, twice in this passage, Peter directs us to where? The Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures is what guides our lives. Other sources of truth, yes, but the one that matters most, that gives us the the perspective on life, is found in the Holy Word. And ultimately, he says, if you obey, if you pay attention, you will obey with a genuine heart. Sheer obedience is not what God is looking for. He's not looking for religious obedience that it's what we do is just obey him. We just go through the rituals and we go through the kinds of things that say we just obey him. It's not just about sheer obedience. It's about heartfelt obedience that comes from a heart that's been transformed by the one who was transformed on the holy mountain. If we do not obey, folks, we do not know Jesus because if we know him, we will obey him. There's a religion, Wikipedia, this inspires this new religion some time ago, but it's called Yoism. Invented by a Massachusetts psychologist, it's based upon the open source principle that the general public creates a combined creative authority and source of truth. Yoism operates and evolves over the internet and has numerous contributors. It shuns traditional religious authorities and divine inspiration in favor of the wisdom of humans. Sounds like the Tower of Babel. Bob Dylan, Albert Einstein, Sigmund Freud are among its most revered saints. Dan Kragman, the founder, make religion open to change and responsive to the wisdom of people everywhere. I don't think anyone has ever complicated a complaint, excuse me, about something that didn't lead to some revision or clarification in the book of Yo, Klugman says. Every aware, conscious, sentiment spirit is divine it has direct access to truth open source embodies that there is no authority and i would say to you this morning not about you but i prefer my this is my beloved son this is my beloved son listen to him let's pray oh our gracious god as we navigate through life and as we experience life father May pay attention. As Peter cries, the cry of his heart as he is entering the eternal kingdom and ending his life, he cries, this is my beloved son, listen to him, of all his followers. And the words ring down through the centuries to us today. There is no other voice, no other voice that matters. There's no other path that we can take and the one that leads us to Jesus. And from that point, it unpacks our lives as we obediently follow him. Father, rivet our hearts. Help us to dismiss the clamor. Help us to listen to the voice of the true voice of the one that matters most is Jesus. Amen.